usually my interviews are, they turn out to be about 50-ish minutes mm-hmm. to an hour, something like that. Mm-hmm. And you know, hers, I was only given about 30 minutes mm-hmm. to do, okay. I think something like that. Wow. So I had a really, I always have more information than I know what to do with. Yeah. And I have it in front of me and I have all my questions or areas that I want to touch on in front of me. And for me, I always know that there are the couple that I really want to get to. Podcast Junkies, episode 329. Welcome back. I'm your host, Harry Duran. If you are new to this show, then I welcome you with open arms. It's the one where we speak to fascinating voices in the world of podcasting, and we get them to kick back their heels and talk about their shows and whatever else is on their mind. If you are a new listener, thank you for checking us out. Maybe it's this week's guest that got you interested. I hope you stick around and you get value from this show. It's been a wonderful journey over the past nine years as we close in on year 10 in 2024, and I'm grateful for every single one of the conversations I've had on this show. If you missed last week's episode, we had a nice conversation with Mark Bishop. He's an old friend, and we talked about his experience in broadcast radio. Mark provided a ton of valuable insights and talked about his transition from radio and television into podcasting and how his experience in broadcast journalism led to the creation of his business and his shows. Have a listen if you haven't done so already. This week, I have the pleasure of speaking with Stephen Shalowitz. If you've ever wondered how a leap of faith can lead you to a journey of self-discovery and transformation, then wonder no more. Stephen is the host of the One Way Ticket Show. And in this episode, he talks about his transition from advertising, which led him to stints in China and Vietnam, to hosting a successful podcast in New York City. It's truly inspiring, and his journey weaves together tales of personal growth, cultural exploration, and the evolution of the advertising medium itself. Stephen is a master interviewer, and in this episode, you'll get a lot of insights into his process, the work that he puts into preparing for his guests, which is exceptional, and it's reflected in the quality of his interviews, and a conversation about the importance of adapting to changing technology and trends in the podcasting world. Having listened to several of his episodes in preparation for this interview, I was truly impressed by his work ethic and the dedication he puts into providing a quality show. Whether you're just getting started as a podcaster or you've been doing this for a while, there's a lot of takeaways from this episode that I know you'll love. If you're enjoying this episode or past episodes, I'd love it if you leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash podcast junkies as I'd love to read yours out next. And remember, these episodes are chock full of great takeaways. And as a listener, I want you to focus all your energy on our conversations. Rest assured, you can always visit podcastjunkies.com to read the full show notes for each episode, which includes all guest links as well. Okay, before we get into this uninterrupted conversation with Stephen, here are a few words from the folks that support this show. With so many companies starting up in the podcasting space, sometimes it's a bit of a challenge to figure out who you can trust and what the company is all about, which is why with my co-founder, Brad Nolan, we've created The Podosphere. Think of it as Yelp for podcasters. The Podosphere features all the companies making moves in the podcasting space. In this comprehensive directory, you'll be able to view the different companies by category, rate your favorites, and connect with them on their socials. As you learn more about your favorite companies, you'll also be able to create your own pod stack, which is a feature that lets your fans know all the companies and services that you're currently using to produce your show. For the most comprehensive podcast directory in the galaxy, head on over to thepodosphere.com. If you've been on the fence about getting your podcast started, I have great news for you. My newly updated course, Podcast Blueprint 101, walks you through everything you need to get your podcast off the ground. And best of all, listeners of this show will get 50% off. In this course, I'll walk you through everything you need to get your podcast off the ground. In section one, Mindset, we'll talk about getting started, the importance of the right mindset, and how to think about continuous improvement for your show. In section two, we lay the groundwork. We talk about planning your show, positioning it, and how to go about creating a quality production. In the growth section, we focus on where and when to publish your show, how to promote it to the right platforms, and as an added bonus, some specifics about how you can profit from your show as well. I've also included a list of tools and services that have been helpful for me in the growth of my show. So again, the URL is podcastblueprint101.com and use promo code PBHD50 to get 50% off exclusively for listeners of the show. So Stephen Shalowitz, host of the One Way Ticket Show, thank you so much for joining me on Podcast Junkies. It's great to be aboard your show. Thanks so much for the invitation. So we were connected through Jennifer, is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. And you were working, you're in a mastermind together or is that, tell me a little bit about the program where you met her. 
You know what? You've got me on that one because I think we were in a mastermind together quite some time ago. And I believe we've both left the mastermind. At least I know I did. But the great thing about those types of gatherings is that you always get to meet great people, like-minded people, and many of them I've stayed in contact with. So Jennifer being one of them. So we want to give her a shout out for connecting (laughs) us. Yes. Thank you, Jennifer. I was just on a call with her. We're working on a launch for a, a podcast client and we're partnering together and we're building a network of shows with her magazine work that she does. So she's been top of mind recently. Yeah, she's lovely yeah. and she's a very creative person and just really great to speak with. So send her my best regards. Yes, I will. So how do you think about this idea of self-improvement and are you always looking at that as an option? You know, some people read, do courses, online courses, or join masterminds. So as you've moved, you know, you were in advertising for a long period of time, and and we'll get into that. But as you started to make the move into the world of entrepreneur, podcast host, realizing the things that you did and didn't know, I went through this exact same experience when I started my show in 2014. I read that Jim Rohn quote that you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And so I quickly realized the things that I, I didn't learn in university or in my corporate world. So How do you think about that? And and what was that journey for you in terms of discovery of where you needed more help in terms of learning those types of things? Sure. I think there's actually a couple of threads there that I can probably pick up on. And I think one of them was the first thing that you mentioned, which is this whole notion of self-improvement. And for me, I think every day should be a day of self-improvement for all of us. And I think that there are a lot of people out there, and God bless them for doing this, but there are a lot of people that say, I'm going to join a mastermind, or I'm going to do this, or I'm going to read this book, because once I read the book, then I'm going to know everything that I need to know. Or once I join this particular uh, gathering of five other people or whatever it is. In other words, people like to have that all institutionalized, or if I listen to this podcast, this is going to make me a better person. And I think those avenues can certainly help. But I think that having an approach to saying that every day is about self-improvement, every day is about saying the world isn't black and white, it's very gray, and every day being open up to possibilities is a day for self-improvement. So that's the first thing. However you come to it, just be open to the possibilities of what self-improvement can be all about. It can be a conversation with somebody that you meet on the street or in the subway. I live here in New York, so a lot of subway riding for me. But it can be about, and it can come really from almost anything. So I think there's that. And then in terms of my case, at least in terms of being a podcaster, I mean, I don't know how far back we want to go because I started the One Way Ticket Show back in 2012, but the antecedents to the One Way Ticket Show were when I was doing a radio show when I lived in Singapore. So for the benefit of the listeners, I lived in Asia for 16 years, all over China and in Singapore. I worked in advertising for Young and Rubicam one of the biggies, all over China and in Singapore. The weekend I had a radio show in Singapore. It was first a jazz show, then Latin music and lifestyle. And then I also did the World Music Channel and the Latin Music Channels for Singapore Airlines in-flight. And I say this because in the course of these conversations, or in the course of all of this programming, you know, I got to interview a lot of celebrities. And one day I was on the bus, and if you have any listeners that have either been to Singapore or live in Singapore. I was on Beach Road where our office was and I was taking the bus. And I remember sitting there and saying to myself, wow, I wonder where all these celebs would go if I gave them a one-way ticket, no coming back. And that was the kernel of the idea for my show. I knew I was going to move back to the US. So I said, one day I will do a whole show around it. So the reason I tell you all of this is background is that Doing my show and the One Way Ticket Show and starting that podcast back in 2012 when people did not know what a podcast Mm -hmm. was and I had to explain to people what a podcast was, the learning curve was enormous for me. And when you talk about self-improvement, going back to your question, and we talk about learning, every day, every interview was an experience in how to really do this. I had plenty of radio experience and plenty of experience in terms of interviewing people. But podcasting was a different medium in terms of, especially in those days and in the early years, of getting yourself known and getting your show known and getting your show out there. And that was difficult. And dare I say, even though it's funny, because while there weren't a lot of podcasts then, and 
There weren't a lot of podcasts then. And so in a way, it could be easier to get your show out there and listen to. Now, there are so many podcasts out there. It's just the reverse. And it's more difficult to get your show known and out there. Because again, just the proliferation, which I'm sure we'll be talking about, in a way, in and of itself, is a good thing. So for me, the learnings didn't come so much from interviewing people, et cetera, in terms of the art of interviewing, because I had a lot of experience doing that. Although I will say one is learning every single episode that one does, but I'm talking about the real learning curve. The real learning curve for me has always been just the marketing of the show and the getting it out there and the change of times that we're living in to get it out there. So I hope I answered your question. You did. You answered it very eloquently. And it's clear your experience behind the mic. And for any, for the benefit of the listener, it, it's interesting to see how you're able to hold the thread of the question that was originally asked. And we're getting inside baseball here in terms of podcast and hosting, which is what fascinates me and why I love to have this show. And just to see how everyone handles these conversations. I notice myself when I'm in, being interviewed sometimes, I, I decide to, you know, am I wearing my podcast guest hat or am I my host hat? Do I want to jump in and take over the conversation? And I'm always wearing And let's face it, isn't it easier to be the host because <laughs> you're in the driver's seat? Yeah, you can control the flow. So many threads there to pull. So I'm going to try to manage some of them. Let's start with New York because that's, you know, where my heart is. I grew up in Yonkers, New York, and I was lived in the city. I lived in East Village. I lived in Greenpoint. I lived in the Upper East Side. So it holds a special place in my heart and then moved out in 2014. I lived in L.A. of all places for four years. And then now home is Minnesota. So the Midwest. And I know that you have a connection to the Midwest as well. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm a third generation Chicago. And, and when people ask me where I'm from, I say I'm from Chicago, but I live in New York. Yeah. And the funny thing is I've lived in New York since 2006. Yeah. And so a lot has happened in New York, right? I was yeah. there for uh, 9-11. I lived in the East Village. And I'm curious, you know, being a New Yorker, I was also there for Hurricane Sandy to, to experience that blackout there. So naturally, as someone who makes their way there, you've lived there as long as you have, you develop a connection to a city in a way that's hard to explain for people that are not from there or have not spent time there. It's an energy, it's a vibe. And so what is, you know, if you think about who you were prior to moving to New York City and then the life that you lived there and the experiences that you had there, the highs and the lows, how do you explain to someone what it's like living in New York City? Can I just pick up, though, on something that you said, that you become connected to a city and it yeah. becomes a part of you, what you were saying? Because for me, one of the cities that I lived in when I was in China was Beijing. And I don't want to date myself, so I don't even want to tell you the first time I lived in Beijing or the first time I went to Beijing when I was a student. However, I did live there from 90, 91 to, through 94. And then I lived in Guangzhou and then I lived in Shanghai and I lived in Hong Kong before that and then I moved back to Singapore. Beijing for me was like a second home and the city has changed exponentially. But the last time I was there was in 2012 and I went back to my old neighborhood and my old haunts and there's just this visceral feeling that you get, or at least I get from living there because I speak Chinese and it's the accent, the Beijing accent is so endearing to me on a number of levels, because my first Chinese teacher taught us to speak with a Beijing accent, okay. and it's very sing-song. So I have this visceral connection to Beijing. I also have a very visceral connection to Singapore, where I lived for nine years. So, But in terms of New York, one thing that I tell people is that even though it is a huge city, and I live in Manhattan, I'm on the Upper West Side, I say even though it is a very big city, it is still a very small town, because New York City is made up as many cities are really, I mean, Chicago is as well. New York City is made up of little neighborhoods and each sort of few block radius is a very different feel than the next few block radius. And where I live, for example, and it's so funny that you're bringing this up because I think about this every day. When I walk down West 72nd Street to go to either Trader Joe's or Fairway, which is the grocery store, or I go to the gym, I think to myself, what a lovely little neighborhood this is. Mm. I pass by the bodega owner that I wave to. I pass by the guys that 
you know, in the barber shop. I pass by the doorman and we all, the, bar, the butcher, we all know each other, yeah. right? Yeah. Because we see each other every day. There are the couple of people that sit outside the bakery and that have their coffee every morning. We always say hello to each other. I don't know their names. They yeah. don't know my name, but it's this sense of neighborhood. And so that's what I like to tell people is that New York is this city full of neighborhoods. And even though it's this huge metropolis, it is still a very neighborhood centric and neighborhood focused kind of city do you feel it changed after covid because i was there recently went to visit my folks went up to yonkers for a bit and we went decided to poke our head into the city for a night and next time you got to come say hello <laughs> i will i will definitely and i think because now because i live in an environment that's a very different we're about 30 minutes outside the minneapolis and i can tell you that in the morning, I wake up in the morning and I see trees because we have but a swamp that was bought out by the neighbors so that no one could ever develop there. So you wake up seeing that. I see it. There's been the occasional buck or deer that runs through the yard. Turkeys pass through all the, the neighbors' yards. Our neighbors have chickens, which we have to watch when they're on vacation. So for me as a city slicker, if you will, like to have the ability to kind of settle down and not have sirens in the background when you're falling asleep, <laughs> which was, a, I thought, or when you're recording a podcast, <laughs> I used to brag about how I could, Oh my God, I could sleep through anything and sleep through a siren. And, and I remember the first time I left the city for an extended period of time, I was like, Whoa, it's so quiet. But I think now what I'm used to now is interesting to see how being in this environment and then going back into the city, I, I felt a bit different, you know, this time, to be honest, it's just a, a bit of more frenetic energy, if you will. Yeah. I can feel very jarring when you're going from a very quiet place to the city because there is a lot of energy. One of the things that I do love about living here is that you don't need a car. You can really walk almost anywhere you need to walk to. That's to say if you're living in Manhattan or at least the central part of Manhattan, if you will. And I love the fact that I could be at Lincoln Center. I could walk to Lincoln Center in a matter of minutes. In fact, my previous apartment I could have a ticket to a performance at Lincoln Center, and it would take me just as long to wait for the elevator, go down, because I was on the 36th floor, to wait for the elevator. Was I on the 36th floor or 37th floor? I can't That's remember high. now even, but I was high. But I was on the 30-something floor. I would go down. It would take me longer to almost get down in the elevator and wait for the elevator than it would to walk over to Lincoln Center. And you know, just to have that, to have all the cultural institutions at your doorstep is just phenomenal. And to have Central Park right here is also just extraordinary. And you asked the question, how New York has changed since COVID. It hasn't, it hasn't. Because New York, I think, is a city of constant change. Yeah. So it's almost like saying, how did it change from, I'm making this up, 1985 to 90, 90 to 95, sure. 90. I will say, though, a lot of businesses have closed, yeah. very sadly. The homeless problem has become even more acute. Mm -hmm. Restaurants have closed. Some restaurants, of course, have opened for outdoor dining, mm -hmm. which is a nice thing. But then, of course, there are more rats on the street. And, of course, the big thing, without getting into politics, is, and it has nothing to do with COVID, but it's over the last, I guess, year or so, is the amount of pot smoking and public, oh, yeah. pub, you know, because uh, cannabis became legalized. Yeah. And so the number you just, the city is awash in pot and it drives me absolutely crazy. And it's a whole big subject for me because, you know, if we're told to follow the science and unfortunately I've had reason to go to the hospital for a number of things over the last since the beginning part of the year and all over the, you know, wild Cornell area, it's no smoking, no smoking, no smoking. And you see all these signs for no smoking, we're smoke-free environment. So it's like, that's the science. Yet our lawmakers that are telling us to follow the science yeah. aren't following the science themselves because they just want to make a buck and tax the pot. In the meantime, you get a bunch of drugged out people all over the city. The whole city smells like pot. And it's a rather unfortunate byproduct of what I think 
are misguided policies. Mm. But again, I know this isn't a political show and we can have that conversation perhaps <laughs> offline or if people want to reach out to me, I'd be happy to share more context with them. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they will. Yeah, it is a touchy subject and you kind of see it. It's happening here because it just got legalized in Minneapolis yeah. as well. And even smaller towns, we live in a town called Shorewood, you know, the council is like struggling to figure out what to do. Do we like ban it and like by the water because there's tons of lakes here and there's kids there and just like what to do. And so I think each, every location is struggling to figure out what to do. We're sort of a Wild West moment now. Well, when you talk about kids, let me just say, in my previous building, the one that I mentioned, I was on the 30-something floor, which I can't remember the floor now. On more than one occasion, there would be, there's a high school not far from that building, and you would get, and there was a, a plaza in front of the building where I lived. And so you get the high schoolers smoking pot in front of there, and the pot smell would just waft into the lobby of the building and all the little ones would be waiting to be picked up to go to kindergarten, daycare, school, and they'd have to inhale all of this. So I'm thinking to myself, wow. you know, where are we not following the science? And for all these government officials that are saying it's all about the kids, yeah. well, is it really about the kids? Because you haven't thought this through. Yeah. That's really what we're seeing. What I think they should do, and I spoke to my assemblywoman about this because she had a meet and greet outside, and she got quite an earful from me, <laughs> shall we say. And she basically threw up her hands and said, well, what do you want us to do? I said, you know what you need to do? I said, you need to do what they do in airports. I said, you have these little smoking cubes. I said, anyone that wants to go smoke pot, God bless them. Let them go in these smoking cubes. Let them smoke themselves into oblivion. And then when they're ready, they can come out, be all drugged up as you want to be. But I at least don't have to smell that stuff. Yeah. I always used to walk by those pods in the airport and just see all these people in there in a cloud of smoke. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah, that can't be healthy. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about your background. Obviously, you spent a lot of time. Yeah, we got a long way off of <laughs> podcasting. <laughs> That's what I love about it, though. You just kind of pull all the threads together because everything that you're experiencing is colors you and your yeah. life. And obviously, it, there's no way you can have it not feed into the thoughts you have, the perceptions you have, the opinions you have. And that colors you as a host. And as you have conversations on podcasts or with your guests, it all becomes like a part of who you are. And so in advertising, did you know you wanted to get into advertising when you were in university or when you were younger? Absolutely not. Okay. It was the last thing that I wanted to do. I never considered it. What happened was I ancient history here. So I studied Chinese language and literature as an undergrad. And people thought I was building a spaceship in my garage when I told them I was studying Chinese because that was 10,000 years ago. Yeah. And uh, nobody was studying Chinese at that point. I mean, real. I mean, of course, there were people studying Chinese, but very, very few. I mean, there were four of us. I went to Washington University in St. Louis undergrad. There were four of us that graduated with a degree that year in Chinese. So to put it into context. And then I went to Johns Hopkins to do my master's in international relations. So originally I wanted to go into either the foreign service or international broadcast journalism. Okay. And I had done an internship at CNN, for example, while I was in graduate school. And I always knew I wanted to go into communications. That would be one thing that I would want to do, but I always wanted to have a China focus and I wanted to do something with China. So I had a Rotary Foundation scholarship to move to Singapore after graduate school for more Chinese language study. Then I moved to Hong Kong in search of my China job because I wanted a China job, largely in communications. And originally I was going to go into PR because I liked the discipline of PR in terms of the writing, the change of perception from an editorial environment. It wasn't just about, you know, someone's having a concert and we got to promote it or, you know, that kind of fluff. I'd like the more strategic angle in public relations, crisis management, mm -hmm. and so on. And I thought at the time it would really be a fascinating area to go into vis-a-vis -vis China and vis-a-vis -vis East Asia using my background, my language skills, and so on. And I was interviewing for a job in public relations with Burson Marsteller. I can give them a shout out. But the gentleman that was running Burson Marsteller for China also was running Young and Rubicam for China. And 20 minutes into the interview, he said, I'm willing to offer you a job. And then I basically said yes. And then I said to his number two person, are you offering me a job in PR or advertising? He said advertising. <laughs> and I said, okay, I'll take it just because I wanted to stay in Asia and yeah. work with China and in the communications industry. As it turns out, 
it worked out very well for me because I got to live in a number of Chinese cities and I was working in advertising as China was moving towards a market economy. And of course, advertising is one of the vehicles there. And so to work in that environment where, I mean, when we were hiring people, basically, if they could speak some English and had a pulse, we hired them because they didn't know anything about advertising. I did not study advertising, yet I grew up in a market economy. And of course, I grew up with ads yeah, yeah. and being a bit of a TV junkie, yeah. podcast junkie, TV junkie. <laughs> you know, I'm also a podcast junkie, but, you know, being a bit of a TV junkie, I was able to, you know, learn a little bit about advertising through looking at them and so on. Anyway, so that's how it all happened. So I never intended on going into the field. Absolutely not. But I learned a heck of a lot. Yeah, I would imagine. And I had great clients along the way. How is your perspective about the function of advertising and marketing changed over the years, especially when you went into it at a moment when I'm sure there was a lot of excitement about what was possible, your new markets, you know, and then you watch a show like Mad Men and you get to see the, the glamorous side of what happens in there. Right. Position for you evolved in retrospect, when you look back at how Mark, you know, the power that marketing has to shift people's buying habits and maybe get them to buy something that maybe they don't need. <laughs> sure. Know? And so as you think about looking at it, having been in it, belly of the beast, and then coming out of it and now looking back at it and how has that evolved in your mind and what role does it serve now from well, your perspective? Sure. Well, let me just say, take the first part of your question because you have to understand, I was not working in New York yeah. at the time of big expense accounts yeah. and three martini lunches and, you know, everything's very glamorous. I was working really in the trenches in China and, you know, and that was tough. And, you know, talking about having a whole separate conversation about pot smoking and, you know, here in New York, I could have a whole, you know, discourse about what it was like working in China in the 90s versus what it's like today, yeah. okay, or yeah. even living. So I was in a completely different environment. I mean, at one point I was sent down because Colgate was one of my clients. Sure. At one point I was sent down to Vietnam to launch Colgate toothpaste in China. So again, to be able to work in that environment really in the trenches, I mean, there was... I had to physically go to Ho Chi Minh TV with media plans. I had to find a media buyer even to begin with. Wow. And you had companies, for example, that weren't doing just media buying. They were doing media buying and they were selling air conditioners. Okay. I mean, this is like the range. This was, it was such the wild west throughout that whole time in these developing markets. So I was totally immune from anything glamorous that was even going on. Okay. So there's that. So I can't answer that part. However, I will say that advertising was seen to be as a very glamorous industry. I think it was a very exciting industry and still is because even just making a TV commercial, it's like making a little movie. Mm -hmm. I actually liked a lot of the behind the scenes bits of it yeah. because it involves so many different disciplines, not only a TV commercial, but also when you're working in account management, it requires your brain to be just stretched in so many different ways because you take a very helicopter approach to a client's piece of business and you touch sales, you touch marketing, you touch the consumer, you just touch on so many packaging, for example, insights and, yeah. and so much, you, you touch so many different disciplines that it's a very exciting industry. Having said that though, it's changed an awful lot in terms of an industry. So much has become gone online. I find that when I look at ads today, I don't find that there's any real central idea behind the advertising. I think a lot of it's wallpaper mm. because we have remotes that can click fast forward. Now I think people, well, we've had for years, but people click fast forward or they DVR things. So they flip through the ads as I know yours truly does. So I think it's so much harder for advertisers to make their mark today. And I find that people are getting so much on the bandwagon of you name it today. And everyone is supposed to be socially conscious, have a social consciousness in terms of their advertising, which again, becomes like wallpaper. I just want to know about the product. So I think the industry just has changed so much. And like I said, a lot's gone online. A lot's just gone digital. I think there's an absence of ideas. And frankly, I've been out of the industry right now since 2016, and I haven't been following it. And so that's about all I can say about it, really. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, with the influx of all these channels, on-demand channels like Netflix, 
it's I realize and I listen to podcasts. We don't watch regular broadcast TV, so it's jarring sometimes when I'm like in an yeah. airport and I or at home and I'll catch a commercial. I'm like, oh, wow, they still make those. <laughs> and it's just like, it's really weird because it's like a weird other world. And you could right. see the, the artificialness of what they're trying to do. And then like this, the, you know, and I know, I mean, I was born in 1970. So I grew up like in with all those commercials. I can sing the jingles. So Hungry I hungry, can too, hungry, absolutely. Hungry Hippo and all the breakfast cereals, <laughs> Lucky Charms. Absolutely. And that's, and you know what? And it was part of popular culture. And that's talked to something else. There's two other points I want to make here. And that's, I think in some ways, we've lost a lot of cultural cues, common cultural cues in this country because of the decentralization of media and of entertainment. Now, in and of itself, it's a good thing in the sense that there's more options, there are more choices, witness the podcasting landscape, right? So that's great. However, these cultural cues that we all have right now, do you remember the whole where's the beef campaign, right? (laughs) And you were to say, I think that I cannot think of a commercial right now. And even that everybody in this country would know. Even during, for example, the Super Bowl, yeah. there's always a few standout commercials, and then they'll get some airplay afterwards. Yeah. But again, to your point, if you're not watching legacy media, you're going to see them once on the Super Bowl, and then it's yeah. one and done. You'll talk about it the next day, and then boom, that's it. However, the interesting development also when it comes to communication and when it comes to product and getting the name of products out there is the use of, and I abhor this word, influencers. Mm. Okay. I don't like that word for a variety of reasons, but when you put, when you have product placement for certain people and brands think that just because XYZ person is using this product or touting the product or touting a location, for example, or an experience, therefore it's going to explode. I have very mixed feelings about that actually, and its efficacy and its long-term benefit to the brand. Because oftentimes for me, it's more about the quote-unquote influencer than it is about the actual brand. It reminds me of the, I listened to the episode you had with Stephen Kotler and you talked about your time, I believe you went to Iran and you, you made it a point not post photos because it was taking you out of the experience of being there present for that moment. Well, I didn't post photos on that trip largely because I didn't take my laptop with me and I don't think I took technology with me. However, you're absolutely right and thank you first of all for listening to my show. There are times where I don't post photos. Oh, no, maybe it was my, I was talking about Iraq, actually, because what I did, though, I did post photos from Iraq, but that was because people were begging me before I went to please, yeah, yeah, to please post it. But thank you for memory. But I have been to Iran, actually, also, and I didn't post there. Um, I was there in 2007. But when I was in Iraq last year, in 20, it was there November 2022, I did just because but I wasn't wild about it because I didn't want to be taken out of the moment that mm-hmm. I was in. Yeah. And I think sometimes people like to post photos because they say, hey, look where I am. But for me, I'm going for myself. I'm not going because I want to impress anybody. Yeah. 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 And I, I think that t- just to kind of tie that thread together with the influencer, because you can see when it's like showing off perfectly placed and positioned photos and you know you can tell they've got a camera team and just like yeah. you're sharing the experience but i think to your benefit you know what you get from being there every little time you're distracted by well and, and good to take the photos but then to just take the actual time to like post them or take 20 and you see people like posting in front of these marquees and things like that so i think it's we're losing a lot of that our ability to just stay in the present moment because of everything that's happening nowadays and it's moving so fast I agree. And, you know, even at the end of the day, when I'd go back to my room and I'd have a little bit of time on some days, I'd say, okay, I have enough energy to post. And Mm -hmm. on other days I think, my gosh, this is such a slug, (laughs) you know? I mean, so as I mentioned you before I started rolling, I'm going to Antarctica in a couple of, well, in a couple of weeks as we record this. And so I'll be in Antarctica, the Falklands, South Georgia. I don't know what Wi-Fi is going to be like there. I am tempted and I probably will post because there are a couple of days at sea. And if we do have Wi-Fi and I'm just at sea and I have 48 hours, you know, to do whatever I want, that's okay. That's fine to do it for a little bit. I'd be remiss if I didn't come back and ask where this passion for, first of all, Asia, China, because this seemed to have started early on. And do you recall, like, what was the trigger for that and where that passion was lit? 
Sure. It really was when I was a kid. First, I come from a family of travelers. My parents had traveled extensively overseas before people really started traveling. And so I think part of it is through them, part of it's genetic. But when I was a kid, when I was small, was the time that China was just opening up when Nixon went to China. And I remember seeing reporters starting to go to China and just and bringing back reports from this place that was just so alien yeah. to anything that I ever could dream of. And I thought to myself, I really want to go there. And at a very early age, I knew that I wanted to study it and study Chinese. And so it's been a lifelong passion. Always been very interested, always been fascinated by non-Western cultures. And mm-hmm. I was very fortunate to have teachers along the way that helped to feed my curiosity about these cultures through the coursework. And so that's how it really all started. That's how it all happened. And then, you know, I've been very lucky to travel throughout Asia, in Africa, North Africa, the Middle East, and and so on, places people don't usually go. And for me, it's just been a great joy and truly a wonderful learning experience and an enriching experience. And going back to your very first question about this notion of self-improvement, I don't go on trips because I'm in search of self-improvement or I'm you know, trying to find myself or anything like that. But you can't walk away from going to another country that is so alien to your own country without making it a learning experience and without growing from that. Yeah, I remember the first time I went to Thailand and it was truly like a, a shock to the senses in terms of no language. It didn't sound like any language I'd ever heard before. The colors were just so vibrant. Everything was just moving at a million miles an hour. And I just I remember it's one of the first times when I really felt like I was on another planet. <laughs> you know, just like, And it's it the best feeling, feeling, isn't it? Yeah, I love yeah, that feeling. Yeah. Is that what drives you to keep doing the traveling, to just continue to have that experience and to just be exposed to all these cultures? I think it's a bunch of things, actually. I think that is number one, one of them. Just, I like the sensation of being in a place that is totally alien, totally foreign. I think for me, it's also a great sense of curiosity about these places. And I want to read between the headlines because I'm one of these people, you know, if you give me something to read, I'm going to say, yeah, but. In other words, I want to question things and I want to see places for what they really are versus what a journalist with his or her bias is telling me about these places. And I just think I'm going to borrow from Susan Sontag, who said, living life abroad facilitates treating life as a spectacle. Mm. And I think you can change that to say, traveling abroad facilitates treating life as a spectacle. And it truly is. And it's the most remarkable experience to be able to befriend people in other countries that you would never, I mean, that have just vastly different experiences and vastly different life stories than yours, to be able to befriend them and to have a common language with them and to just enjoy each other's company. And that to me is is just extraordinary. I mean, and the reality is I love different cultures. I love language. Yeah. I love art. Yeah. I love archaeology. Mm. I love history. And, you know, when you get to travel, you get to indulge in all of that. Very fun. As I said, I'm very, very lucky to be able to do that. Yeah. Truly, I feel very blessed. And I did connect with you on Instagram, so I'll be following your journey on your future travels. <laughs> but just know if I'm not posting, yes. it doesn't mean that I'm not That's anywhere. Right. It just right. means that I'm not posting. Right. So thank you for that. So well, we, you can go back and see some of the previous posts yeah, that I did. So I hopefully you can enjoy them. Yeah. So when you're in Singapore, you started the radio show, but how, yes. connect the fact that you were working in advertising with the idea for starting a radio show. <laughs> well, let's just say... So what happened was I had dabbled in radio previously when I was in high school and one or two times when I was in China, people had asked me to do this or that on radio. And I loved the medium. I always had a love for the medium Mm -hmm. of radio. Mm -hmm. And there was a jazz program on one of the stations in Singapore. And I loved that show. And I said to one of my friends, my friend Cindy, I was like, and she knew everybody. I was like, hey, I really love that show. I was like, I really want to, I'm wondering if they're going to, they would like get me to host it. Can I host it? Can they rotate me on it? She's like, I'll introduce you to the program director. She introduced me to the program director. She said, send me a demo. I sent in a demo and that did it. And so they rotated me on the show. So it was from eight to midnight, Saturdays and Sundays. So I usually got, the Sunday shift. And then Monday morning, I was back in the office 
And I got calls from my clients like, oh my gosh, Stephen, are you still there? I was like, yeah, why? They said, because we heard you on radio last night. And I was like, oh, okay. Anyway, and so then the station started a Latin music and lifestyle show. And this was the time, this was in, let's see, this was in 99. Okay. And when Latin music was, it was the whole Ricky Martin, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, Copa de la Vida, yeah. you know, a lot of his music was beginning to take off. Of course, Gloria Estefan, her music had been around, Mark Anthony, (laughs) you know, and so on, Santana's (laughs) rebirth and so on. So there was this great love of them, but also all the Latin artists. So the station was starting the shows called Encuentro Latino on Gold 90 FM. Got to give them a shout out. And so I said, hey, I said, you know, I said, I know the music. I speak Spanish. I said, can I host the show? And they said, yes. And that's how it happened. Where'd you learn to speak Spanish? In high school, college, and then traveling through, you know, Spain, Mexico, so on. At that point, and then subsequently, I've been to other Latin American countries. Do you have a memorable song from your rotation that you would love to play? (laughs) Okay, so true confessions. I'm still listening to that same music. I mean, I listen to a lot of it still and in no particular order i listen to celia cruz i listen to ricky i listen to luis you know luis miguel alejandro sanz from spain Mm -hmm. i listen to god who else do i listen to you know i do listen to a lot of mark anthony's Mm -hmm. old stuff i was playing shakira before she became shakira in other words when she was big in colombia but she was not known in the english-speaking world and i really prefer her old stuff Mm. But I listen to, I can't even begin to tell you because it depends on the mood. I listen to a lot of tangos. I listen to salsa. I listen to, you name it. I listen to it all. And I still listen to that music. And in fact, I was listening to Mark Anthony, excuse me, to um, Luis Miguel right before we came on. (laughs) That's great. So I'm Salvadorian. I was born in El Salvador. Were you? Yeah. uh, Oh, I didn't know that. My brought me here when I was a year old. So I grew up in Latin culture and in New York, it's more of the, the Puerto Rican, the merengue. And the Dominican, yeah, the, the Dominican, Dominican music, the, yeah. The, and then my ex-wife was Colombian, so I got introduced to that whole genre Vianato of music. and so on. Yeah, and then we've been to, we had been to Argentina, so I, I have a love for tango music oh, as well. Tango. So just a mix of everything. And, and when you start to see the, the genres mixing and different sounds coming out of it, it always holds a special place in my heart for that as well. You and me both. And, you know, I love the music of Colombia because there's a singer. Do you know who Charlie Za is? Yeah, yeah. He's an older, Charlie Za, a couple of his tunes I listen to like over and over yeah, yeah. and over. And Grupo Nietzsche, you know, Grupo, Grupo Nietzsche. Nietzsche. Yeah, yeah, totally. yeah, they're an old group, you know, from yeah. Cali. Gotas de Lluvia, you yeah. know that song? Yeah, I won't yeah, sing yeah. it for you. You know, I listen to all of that stuff still. I know it's crazy for a gringo like me to be listening to this no, stuff, but know. you know, You're very well versed, and I'm surprised you should probably put together a Spotify playlist of the, your favorite songs. And I have had people ask me okay. for playlists, and the funny thing is, I recorded most of my shows yeah. on Encuentro Latino on cassettes, and I still oh, have wow. them, and I need to send them somewhere yeah. to have them digitized because the music was, yeah. If you get that, that playlist great. going, we'll add it to the show notes by the time the episodes go live. We'll share it. <laughs> do you want me to do one? Yeah, please. That would be just like a total random, total random Latin music okay. favorites. You know, like so 10, 15, yeah, yeah, yeah. 20. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'll do that yeah, for you. Yeah. So, much fun. so yeah. I appreciate the listener for being patient for the journey we've been on so far because they're like, I thought we were going to talk about a podcast. And then I think, you know, just telling yes. the story of how you've gotten here. And then you mentioned early on how you got, you know, you're doing the show and you got the idea for the one way ticket. The one way ticket show. The one way ticket show. Show. Podcast. So, yeah. What was your relationship or your understanding of what a podcast was at the time? And what were you thinking it would be? Did you have a plan? Were you working with someone or, you know, talk about those early days? Because we did mention this. You're looking at the guy that I was working with. <laughs> I knew that there was this thing called a podcast. And I thought, I want to get this show up and running. And so I came to New York. I knew like five people. And so I waited a bunch of years because I thought to myself, well, podcasting wasn't a thing in 2006, or maybe it was, but, you know, anyway. And so I waited to, you know, get a critical mass of interesting people that I could interview. So I had my first six. And by a whole series of happenstance, which I won't go into because it's too long of a story, I met someone who's an editor. And I'm not, as I told you at the beginning of the show, before we started rolling, there's high tech, low tech, and there's me. So I was not going to edit the show. So I have an editor, Miratone Studios, which I've been using since day one. 
I adore them. Anyone that wants to use them, please reach out to me because I'll be happy to make an intro. And they've been editing all my shows ever since. So it was just Jay from Miratone, Jay and Roman, the other co-owner in their series of editors, and myself. So it's just it's been me. It's like Louis the Fourteenth said, "I am the state." Letez c'est moi. Well, I am the podcast, and so I've had to do everything. Now, however many years on, it'll be twelve years in March of twenty twenty three. I'm at the point where I'm saying I really can't do it anymore myself. Mm-hmm. I need PR. I need my social media team. Yeah. I need it all because I can't do it all. Why? Because I not only do the one way ticket show, which we can talk about what the premise of the show is. But in addition to that, I also produce and host the Israel Cast podcast for a wonderful organization called Jewish National Fund, which has been around now since 1901. So if my math is correct, that's 122 years. And we feature up really cool stuff going on in Israel, science, technology, innovation, the culinary arts, because Israel is a foodie paradise. Mm -hmm. More vegans in Israel per capita than anywhere else in the world you know, archaeology, you name it. So I also produce and host that show. And I produce the What's Burning podcast for the Galilee Culinary Institute, which is a new culinary center being built in Kiryat Shmon in Israel's Northeast Galilee region. So I have a lot of plates. So I am very embedded in the podcast world because I'm like living, breathing, eating, sleeping, everything else in podcasting. (laughs) So there you go. So that's the thing. So for me, doing the one-way ticket show, it's a love, it's a passion, but I'm really at the point now where I really need you know, the assistance to grow it more, yeah. 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 But I'm very happy with it because on the show, I'll share the premise of the show. Yeah, please do. I explore with my guests where they'd go if given a one-way ticket, no coming back. Their destinations can be in the past, present, future, real, imaginary, or state of mind. We also chat about their life, their work, and any projects or books that they have. I'm a stickler for doing my homework. If the guest has a new book out, I read it cover to cover because I prepare. My big thing about preparation, because I know there's a lot of podcasters that don't prepare, and I appreciate that you've prepared for this conversation. There are a lot that don't, and frankly, shame on them, because I think it's very disrespectful. It's disrespectful to the guest to show that you don't care enough about them to prepare. It's disrespectful to the listeners, because if you don't prepare, you're not going to get the best out of your guests. And if the guest is constantly asked a question on in other interviews, you don't want to ask the same thing. You want to ask something different. And frankly, it's disrespectful to me because I want to do the best that I can do and I want to be the best that I can be. Okay. So I do a lot of preparation. I've had some amazing guests throughout the years, everyone from general. And you know, the funny thing is people say, oh, well, who have you had and who are the famous people? And I give them a list and they're like, oh, I haven't heard of that person. <laughs> and one thing I've realized is that is famous means something different to some oh, yeah. to different famous means different things to different people. Yeah. So, I mean, I can tell you, I've had general David Petraeus on, or I've had Dick Cavett on who, if you don't know who Dick Cavett is, shame on you and look him up. I had Ann Margaret on recently. And yeah. if you don't know who she is, Look her up. Yep. I've had on former U.S. Senator Joe Lieberman. I've had on CBS News co-host Tony DeCopo, yeah. or I've had on, you know, John Dickerson from 60 Minutes, or, you know, who else have I had on that's famous? I'm just trying to think. You know, I've had a lot of well-known people on my show. I've had New York Mayor Eric Adams when that, he was yeah. Brooklyn Borough President. That was a really just wonderful interview, and on and on. So I've had a lot of well-known people. Some people are not well-known, but they're all at the top of their game. Yeah. And for me, it's all about bringing their stories and making people look at what travel can mean in a different life light, because again, it, their destinations can be past, present, future, real, imaginary, or state of mind. And the other thing that I really try and do with my show, and it's I appreciate what you're doing with your show, it's long-form conversation, because I think we've lost the art of conversation yeah, today, because everything is about, and I'm lifting up my phone for those that are looking on video, yeah. Everything is about text and everything is about the soundbite and people have no time to explain. And it's going back to something also I said earlier on is that people like to look at things in very black and white terms, but everything I think in life is very nuanced. And when you can get to hear somebody and you can hear their point of view or have them share information without the interruptions of a commercial or of a host that is trying to show more of what they know rather than what the guest wants to share. Mm. It can be very, very irritating. I just have to give you a shout out because I think you are a wonderful host because you let a guest speak. I appreciate that. Thank you. I was intrigued by your conversation with Anne Margaret. So I gave that one a listen to. And 
I'm curious when you think about all the work that you put into preparing for a conversation, what's your thought process when you have this information in front of you? If you've got, you're doing it yourself, your research team is pulling these bits and with someone like Anne, who's been around for so long and it's got so much you can pull from, you've got a limited amount of time, especially with these high profile guests. Can you talk a little bit about your thought process or, or how you go through this information and you curate, you know, what it is that you're going to pull from this information so that you can formulate the questions that you want to ask? Well, first of all, I have to correct you and say, I don't have a research team. Okay. <laughs> Again, you're looking at the research team. So the research team is a team of one and his name is Stephen. Well, what I usually do, it's a little bit of research and it's a little bit of magic more than mm. anything else, because what I do is I try, let's just take Ann Margaret, for example. Sure. I tried to listen to as many interviews as she gave as possible. And again, for any listener that doesn't know who Ann Margaret is, you know, I'm joking when I say shame on you, but Google who she is and you'll know who she is. A lot of Minnesotans will probably know her from grumpy old men. (laughs) Okay. But listen, they'll know her from co-starring with Betty Davis and John Wayne and Elvis and Viva Las Vegas and Jack Nicholson. (laughs) That's right. EP and you name it. And everybody who is anybody over the last, you know, since the mid 1950s or excuse me, the early 1960s, George Burns discovered her. She performed in USO shows with Bob Hope in Vietnam, and the list just goes on. I tried to look at as many interviews as she gave as possible. And from there, I start to wonder, and I started to ask questions that I wanted to know that either the interviewer did not delve into more Mm. or that I just happened to want to know. So sometimes questions just pop into my head. As I mentioned about travel and why I love to travel, one of the reasons being I'm curious. Again, you have to be curious to be able to do interviews, okay? And so that was one thing that I did. The other thing that I wanted to make sure, and I do this with as many guests as I can that have done interviews, I want to see their interviews because I want to know the cadence of how they answer questions. Mm. Because in her case, she puts the charm in charming, and I adore this woman, and I so cannot wait to meet her in person. Yet, she is not a chatty Cathy, as they say, right? She gives an answer, and she gives it from the heart, and then that's it, and then you're ready for the next question. So I knew that was the way that she answered questions. The other thing is, and this is in no particular order, by the way, is that I wanted to be very sensitive. And why do I mean by this? Because she did have a relationship with Elvis, or as she says, EP, or she called him EP. She did have a relationship, and I did not want to go there with her, because I did not think it was appropriate. I did see one interviewer do that with her. And I mm. thought it was so inappropriate the way that he was kind of hammering after her. Yeah. And I thought, excuse me, you are a very high paid interviewer and very well known. I don't want to say who it was. And I thought you really needed to lay off her because clearly she was uncomfortable. Yeah. The last thing that I want to do as a host is to make my guests uncomfortable. Mm, yeah. I want to make them feel like they're in my home, yeah. they've come into my living room, and we're having a chat. One thing that Dick Cavett, the famed talk show host, told me that Jack Parr, who was the first host of The Tonight Show, taught him was make it a conversation. And I like to make it as much of a conversation as possible. And so I hope I'm answering your question by saying I try and look at as many interviews as possible. I try and read up as much as possible. The other thing that I like to do is to explore areas that nobody else has asked. And if someone else has touched on a particular topic, I like to take a different approach to it mm-hmm. or a different angle. And I also like to make things personal without making them intrusive, if that makes sense. Yes. So for example, with Anne Margaret, she and I both went to the same high yes, school, Nutria right. High School, which yeah. we spoke about, which was just so she much fun. She sang the song, I believe. <laughs> well, she sang the song to, Nor- you, thank you for listening. She sang the Northwestern fight song, Okay. right? Which is what it was. She sang the Northwestern fight song, but for our Nutria High School, I wanted to ask her about it. So I wanted to ask her about it in a rather personal way and in a different way versus just tell me what it was like going to Nutria High School, right? So I brought in her drama coach who, how did I know who her drama coach was? Because I did my homework and I went on YouTube and I saw Ann Margaret, This Is Your Life. And her drama coach was one of those that came Mm. on that show. So I was able to make it very personal for her and to touch that 
within her without making it intrusive or personal on a very unfriendly level. I think what you've done in the few interviews that I've listened to, it's this fine dance between asking a provoking question that gets a thoughtful response, but also being respectful of making sure you don't go where some the guest doesn't want to go. And there's some subjects in there that were interesting and maybe touchy for her, especially around the t- her time in Vietnam. And there was a point where I think she didn't want to answer something specifically about an experience there. Yes, being on the front lines. Yeah. I said, you know, and, and seeing, like, is there anything, I think I might have asked her, was there anything that she saw that yeah. she wanted to? And she's like, you know, I'd rather not talk yeah. about it. And I respected that. Yeah. And I was like, I was totally cool with that. Yeah. So that was this, yeah, that was as far as I would go with something like that. But, you know, the other thing is the flip side to all of it, because that to me was just such a joy of an interview on so many levels to do. And I probably, I don't know if you're in the same, but I have as much enjoyment out of researching (laughs) as I do doing the interview, right? And I can tell you right now, anything you want to know about Anne Margaret, I can tell you (laughs) because I've done, you know, I mean, I've done the homework and it's a joy to do that. And to go back to your question about how then do you take this information and then distill it? Because usually my interviews are, they turn out to be about 50-ish minutes Mm -hmm. to an hour, something like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Hers, I was only given about 30 minutes Mm, to do, I think something like that. So I had a really, I always have more information than I know what to do with. And I have it in front of me and I have all my questions or areas that I want to touch on in front of me. And for me, I always know that there are the couple that I really want to get to. And then everything else can kind of come into place. But I always know that there are going to be things that a guest says that will precipitate more questions. Mm. And I want them to expand on. The other thing that I always know is that there's an arc to the show. And this for any podcaster that is anyone that's thinking about doing a podcaster as a podcaster, you really need to have an arc for the show. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, so for example, with Anne Margaret, I wasn't going to talk about her years at Nutria High School at the very beginning, although I think she wanted to go there. But I wanted to talk about that at the end to close it. And so I knew what my arc was going to be so I could lead the witness, so to speak, in that case. I must also interject with something else, though, that I think is instructive for yes. podcasters as well as for those interested in doing a podcast. And as we talk about not treading, on certain subjects or Mm -hmm. not making it too personal or making someone feel uncomfortable. By the same token, there are things that I won't necessarily bring up with certain guests if I think that they will think that it's too frivolous. Mm. Although I might look at it as rather lighthearted. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And there were certain things I wanted to ask. For example, General David Petraeus, who was, if our listeners aren't familiar with him, he was the head of the CIA. He was the head of our forces Mm -hmm. in Iraq and Mm -hmm. so on. And a real imposing figure, but a very, very nice gentleman. He's a real officer and a gentleman, right? right? And just a wonderful man. And I approached him for an interview through his office, and he very graciously gave me an hour of his time. And there were certain things that I wanted to ask him about, but I held back because I thought to myself, it's not really in keeping with the tone of the interview. And I don't want him to look at this as sort of a frivolous conversation. So I held back and I didn't go there with him. I would love to have him back. And now that I've had him in conversation with already, I may go there with him. But again, it's a trust that you have to build up with some guests. And certain guests are are very quick with that. And then other guests, it's sort of by the end of the interview, they know that you're legitimate and so on and so forth. I had a wonderful interview with Jay Johnson, for example, who was a former Homeland Security Secretary. And he's a great guest because he actually has his own jazz show. He's gone back to practicing law. He has his own jazz show on radio. And so he we wanted to talk about that and so many other things. So with him, I could sort of press those kinds of buttons. Right, because we had developed that rapport already during our conversation. I love this dance that you have with your guest, you know, and part of it to ensure that success is obviously all the work you've done ahead of time to make sure you know what you're going to talking about. But you're also listening because there's opportunities to pull threads. Sometimes they'll mention something, and so I know as me as a listener, I'm like, oh, I wonder if he's going to go down that that little door that was open there. So how do you manage that dance and deciding? You know, how do I keep to, you know, I guess going off script versus deciding what I committed to as part of my plan for this episode? 
Yeah. What I usually do is if there's a thread there, but I want to move on, I'll say to them, I want to touch on that in just a moment, but first, and then I touch on something else and then I'll go back to it because sometimes that little opening, that little door opening, as you just called it, is a nugget of something that I do want to ask Mm -hmm. later on. So that happens a lot. So then I'm able to say, and I'm able to tie that in together. So you have to really be a very good listener because I've listened to certain podcasts or certain people and I've heard them. It's question, 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 question. (laughs) I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so tired listening to this. You know, have the conversation. There is a time and place though for question, question, question. If you're on the news And it's a 30 minute news show and you've got someone for four minutes or whatever it is, you got to get those questions in. That's clear. But in this wonderful medium of podcasting where it is long form and you you don't want to go on for 12 hours, you know when the length is right and you know about when the time is right to close shop. But having said that, though, is that you want to be able to listen and you want to be able to pick up on those threads. Absolutely. My girlfriend likes to say judgment and curiosity cannot exist in the same space. So I'm always conscious of that as I'm having these conversations. Like I'd rather be more curious, you know, about all the things that you've spoken about today. Can I borrow that? (laughs) Of course, please do. (laughs) (laughs) Judgment and curiosity cannot exist in the same place. By the way, you know, it's also a danger when you're going back to edit the episode because for your listeners, for our listeners here now, I mean, I'll listen back and I'll edit. I keep all questions and answers, but sometimes if the guest has to cough or if yours truly does, and I'm surprised I haven't had to cough once during our conversation, having done all the talking almost now. Yes. Knock on wood, fingers crossed. I'll sometimes go back and I'll think, oh my gosh, why didn't I ask X, Y, and Z, you know, but there's always that. However, Here's another point, pro tip for podcasters or people wanting you to do it, is that keep all of your questions, keep all of the research, because you sometimes, not sometimes, but oftentimes you want to do a round two. In Mm -hmm. other words, I sometimes don't like to give it all away during the first interview. I do want to keep some things for the second interview. And Margaret is a perfect example. I mean, I could have asked her about five top celebs that she worked with, Mm -hmm. and I didn't because I wanted to keep something. I asked her about... Betty Davis, Bob Hope, and Elvis, and and John Wayne, that was the last one. And I had a few others there, but I thought, you know what? There's too many other things to talk about. Let me keep it for another time. I may have to do the same here. (laughs) Okay. I could talk to you for another hour, I'm sure, especially when we're talking shop here. How have you grown as a host over the years? Wow. I think you'd have to ask the listeners more than me, I suppose. (laughs) But I think the one thing is, I think if you do it long enough, I mean, you've had over 300 odd episodes, right? I'm almost at the 300 mark. And for Israel Cast, we've done 177. So you do the math, okay? And so I think as a host, I think it's a sense of confidence having done it more and more and more. I find that just overall confidence. And I think early on, I was afraid to interject my personality into the show. And it's interesting because when I was on radio one of the program directors said, Stephen, people want to learn more about you and people want your personality and they want that. So feel free to open up. And I did on radio. When I started the podcast, I didn't want to make it all about me because I think there's that danger for the host to do that. And I was so cautious about doing that. I almost didn't interject anything (laughs) about me. And then now I'll interject a little bit more. I will. I'll do that. So I feel more comfortable doing that. So I think that's probably how I've grown. Yeah, it comes with time. So just yeah. a couple of questions as we wrap up here that sure. I like to ask my guests. What's something that you've changed your mind about recently? Okay, so I think it's going to have to do with nutrition. And this is kind of, I know that we're winding down the show. Yeah. So maybe this is a question that you're going to have to, how's this for a tease? And how's this for an invite to have a part two with Stephen? <laughs> but I will say, jokes aside, it has to do with certain nutritional approaches and questions I think I've changed my mind about recently over the last several months, given a whole variety of reasons. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. What do you think the most misunderstood thing is about you? Probably my politics. Okay. We can leave those there. (laughs) How's that for being mysterious? (laughs) Very mysterious. Well, Stephen, I really enjoyed this conversation. I was really looking forward to it and especially really admire everything you've done for 
being a spokesperson for podcasting, being a pioneer in podcasting, starting way back in 2012 when people were scotch taping Skype or whatever it was back then <laughs> to get some of these things recorded. I myself was using Skype with Call Recorder and it was a bit of the Wild West back then. And you've done such a, a great job with the show. It's very inspiring. And for anyone who's getting into podcasting, specifically with interview-based format, I think they'll learn a lot. And it's clear when you think about that nugget of you way back having an interest in international broadcast journalism and then understanding like your interest in PR, it's so fascinating to watch all the pieces come together, your love of China and, and different cultures. You've brought everything together and it's very apparent in, in your conversations and in the wide range of guests, how you're just pursuing your creativity and your curiosity and you're bringing the listener along on the, the ride. And which is really fascinating because I always say in a podcast conversation, there's three people, the host, the guest and the listener, singular listener, because there's one person listening at a time. And it's, and what you do is really paint this really wonderful theater of the mind for your listener. And so I really want to just take a moment to say thank you for everything you've been doing and congratulations on all the success you've had with the show. Well, super thank you, first of all, for those very kind words and definitely right back at you for doing all you're doing to promote this wonderful medium that is podcasting. And this has been just such a great joy and fun to uh, join you on your program. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Where's the best place for folks to connect with you in the show? They can come to my apartment here on the Upper West Side. <laughs> Some, <laughs> I have a nice living room. Yeah. They can sit on the sofa and watch me. I'll be there next time I'm in town. So. <laughs> please do. Please do. I'd love to have you here. Yeah. They can definitely get me. At, well, first of all, the show is The One-Way Ticket Show. So yeah. I really hope that people check it out at theonewayticketshow.com. So theonewayticketshow.com, or they can search for The One-Way Ticket Show wherever they get their podcasts. And follow me on all social media at Stephen Shalowitz. Stephen's with a V, at Stephen Shalowitz. Or folks can write to me at Stephen at theonewaytickettshow.com. So that's Stephen at theonewaytickettshow.com. Find me on social media and would really love to just connect with all of your wonderful listeners. And really, again, thanks to everybody for listening. And really thanks to you for allowing me to chat with you today. This is a really lovely way of spending an afternoon. <laughs> thanks again, Stephen. I really appreciate you sharing your time with us. Thank you. Always appreciative of my guest's time. I never take that for granted. I know an hour is valuable time, and I'm so grateful they were able to come on and share their journey with you. As a reminder, if you are ready to get your podcast off the ground and don't know where to start, sign up for Podcast Blueprint 101 and use promo code PBHD50 for half off the price. For a complete picture of everything that's happening in the world of podcasting and all the companies making moves, visit thepodosphere.com and create your own pod stack today. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. Visit fullcast.co and click the play button to learn the five pillars of a successful podcast that every business owner needs to know prior to launching. As a reminder, if you enjoyed this show or past episodes, you can show me some love by leaving a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash podcast junkies and I'll be sure to read those out on a future episode. Intro and outro music composed by Cedar and Soil. Visit cedarsoil.com for his full catalog. Tune in next week for a conversation with yet another fascinating podcaster as we dig deep, learn about their show and what makes them tick. Thanks for all you do to support this show across all our socials. I truly appreciate it. Talk to you next week.